Today's scripture is from Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So there are two types of people in this world. Every one of you fits into one of these two worlds. There's those of us who are normal, um, who like order, who know that Christmas music has a designated time to be played, and it begins after Thanksgiving. Anybody? Okay. Then there's those of you who enjoy chaos and uh, do whatever you want in life. This is becoming anarchy. And you play Christmas music whenever you want. Apparently there's some of you here too. A little louder, a little more proud than the rest of us. I guess you can tell where I stand on that whole issue. But this morning I'm gonna come really close to breaking that rule. So for those of you who are with me, bear with me. For the rest of you, you're welcome. We're not going to talk about a Christmas song this morning, but I need you to think about a Christmas movie, all right? I need you to think about the story of the Grinch. If you think about the story of the Grinch, if you, if you know this, the Grinch is a man who hates Christmas, and he has this lifelong quarrel with the Who's who live down in Whoville, uh, who absolutely love Christmas. They would be amongst the group that plays Christmas music whenever they feel like it, probably 24-7. Um, and... So the Grinch devises this mischievous plan in which he's going to steal Christmas, all the Christmas decorations, all the presents, in hope that he can ruin Christmas for the Who's. And he's sad, right? He's lonely. He's desperate for love. And no one's really exactly sure why he does this, except I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Are you familiar with that? And what happens, the rest of the story goes on, and the Grinch... Uh, 
makes these amazing engineering tools and defies the laws of physics, and it's amazing, and he goes and he steals all of the Christmas gifts and all the decorations and all the stuff that makes up the visible experience of Christmas from the Who's, puts it all into one sleigh, again, defying the laws of physics, and somehow his little dog Max is able to take that thing up the, the highest peak of the highest mountain so that he can push it over the edge and destroy all of Christmas. And so then the story goes on uh, to, to describe a time when he's at the top of the mountain and he's ready to push it off the edge, but he hears something in the background, right? He hears all the Who's down in Whoville. They've lost all the decorations, all the presents, and yet they're singing. Christmas hasn't been destroyed for them. And something about that moment changes the Grinch's thinking. It changes his heart, right? Their unrelenting joy impacts him, and it says, what happened then in Whoville, they say, is that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. So he jumps on the sleigh, and he, he races down into the town, in the town square, and he gives all of the presents back. He gives all the decorations back. And in the 2018 version, the newest version, which is my favorite, and those of you who like the original from the 60s, forgive me. In the 2018 version, one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is where the Grinch has returned all the gifts, but he finds himself back in his house, in his cave in the top of the hill, and he's all alone. He's all alone with his dog, Max, until there is a knock at the door. the most beautiful scene in the whole movie. And it's exactly the experience you and I are designed to have when we read Luke chapter 10. That is what Luke 10 is all about. You see, we've been sitting in, we've been camped out on meditating on this passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we've known this entire month of October, and we've been learning what it means to be a good neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? And we've been calling this series Neighboring. I hope that you know that when you hear the word neighboring, that it's shorthand. It's, it stands for some really important theology that we unpacked a couple of weeks ago. And that's this. There, the, the story begins where an expert of the law stands up to test Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus. You just heard Hannah read the story to us. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus replies, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because the love for God 
who you cannot see is made visible in loving those who you can see, your neighbor. Neighboring is shorthand for the way that the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response kind of strikes a nerve with this, this expert in the law. And he feels the need to justify himself. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? And two weeks ago, we discovered that the answer to that question is way bigger than you might have originally thought. That your neighbor is anyone who comes near you, which means that they're not, it's not limited to those who look like you or who speak like you. It's not limited uh, to those who believe the same things you do, live the same lifestyle you do, or vote the same political party you do. It includes those you like and those you don't like, those who like you and those who can't stand you. Jesus does this by bringing in someone like the Samaritan, because in Jesus' day, speaking to a Jewish man, if he includes the Samaritan in the answer of the question, who is my neighbor? If the Samaritan is included in that answer, then anyone is my neighbor, which is really daunting when you think about the fact that in 2019, we live in a globalized world. Neighbors aren't even those who are physically near us, but we might come near to in some other way. See, it includes those you drive past, those you walk by in the grocery store. It includes your neighbors on Facebook and social media. It includes the neighbors who live across the world who work hard to supply all the goods and things that we have. They're our neighbor all over the planet. This is huge. Who is your neighbor? Uh, almost anyone. The world is approaching 8 billion people. Do you feel... You feel a little overwhelmed? Feel a little bit like, oh, I have the responsibility to love my neighbor? I feel that way. And if we do nothing with this idea, if we just leave it that big, what happens is we all become paralyzed, right? And we all freeze and we do nothing because we don't know what to do. It's overwhelming. It's too huge. And so as a church, what we're trying to do this fall is focus in somewhere. Because if we aim at nothing specific, we will hit nothing. And so let's just think, this morning, and really we're going to think for the rest of the fall about what does it look like to love our neighbors in our neighborhood, those who live near you, near your residence, they reside near you, those who might be in your apartment complex, they live in your development. You see, your neighbor is more than just those people who live and sleep near you, but it's not less than that, right? And what happens is as we, as we focus in on what does it look like to love those who live near us, as we grow to be a good neighbor, that will, that will infiltrate the rest of our life. That will, that will bleed over into all areas of life and everyone that we interact with. And this is an area that we as a church have said for a while now that is an area that we want to grow in. We want to learn what it means to, to be a church in which we become impassioned and equipped to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known in our communities, in our individual neighborhoods, seeing ourselves as missionaries to our neighbors. In your, uh, uh, sermon, guide, in your sermon guide, I hope you all have one. I have one here in front of me. If you didn't grab one, you can always get one from the back. Uh, next month, next week, you get a new one of these, so hopefully make sure to grab one on the way in. In the back of this sermon guide, there is a tool. I'm going to put a picture of it on the screen here. It's a tool that's called a block map, and we found it in a book that's called The Art of Neighboring. And in this book, the authors help us to, know, help us to realize that 
if we are going to love our neighbors, that the very first step of that is to know our neighbors, right? How do you love someone whom you don't even know? And so this exercise is designed to see if you know anything about your eight closest neighbors. How, how was this experience for you? I hope you all did it. If you didn't, do it this afternoon. I encourage you. It's a sobering tool, actually. When I did it a couple of months ago, uh, when I first read the book, um, I was humbled because I could only tell you the names, just the names of about five of my closest neighbors. Couldn't even fill the whole map in. And then the next step on it is actually to go a little deeper and see, well, do you actually know anything of substance about your neighbors? And again, I was humbled because I found that I might know their names, but I don't really know anything about them. My life is not intertwined with theirs much at all. How do you love someone that you don't know? Actually, the authors go on to say that less than 1% of the people who do this exercise can actually complete that and show details about their neighbors who live near them. And I wonder, how, how, did, how did you do? How was that for you? Do you see yourself as an ambassador to Christ in your neighborhood? Because that's what we are. That's why every Sunday morning when we get together, we're gathered in the name of the Lord as a church family. And at the end, after we have, have spent time being reminded of God's love for us through scripture, through song, through prayer, through fellowship, we are then sent out. We're scattered back to our various parts of Montgomery County. And you go, that's why we end the service, every service with the benediction, in which you go with the blessing of God. And the blessing of God is that he goes with you to your neighborhood. You leave this building and you step into a mission field. You step into a place where Christ is not known and you take Christ with you. And I have to wonder, what would it be like if just those of us in this room took that seriously? What if we took this, the call to know and to love our neighbors? How might your community be transformed? How might Montgomery County be changed? I mean, imagine a world where everyone loves their neighbor as themselves. It's a beautiful picture, right? The problem is we all have that neighbor. Do you know who I'm talking about? That neighbor? Neighbor who plays music way too loud at the wrong time of day for hours? The neighbor who is uh, very good at creating drama out of thin air. The neighbors who are nosy. The neighbors who are uh, argumentative and a little bit nasty. There's those kids in the neighborhood that don't know how to treat anybody's stuff, much less yours. They run through your flower beds and all kinds of great things. And There's those neighbors that you've never seen before. You think someone lives in that house, but you just never run into them and they're kind of aloof. They're kind of off in a distance. Those you don't connect with, you don't have anything in common with, they're just different than you. They have those neighborhood. They may have those neighbors. And that's all just staying in our neighborhood. Let's, let's just for, for a moment expand that to work. Y'all have that coworker, right? The one you can't stand. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe you are the boss and it's a couple of those employees that you have. That there's just nothing inside of you that wants to love them. You can't stand them, but maybe you can't afford to fire them either. Let's go to the roads because no one in this entire area knows how to drive, right? Not at least like I do. And the people in the stores, they're in my way. They're annoying and they're, you know, we just keep going with this, right? 
There's difficult family relationships. There's broken friendships that are now awkward when you run into someone. Not to mention the poor and the vulnerable, those who live all around us, and yet we have so conveniently put blinders on and isolated ourselves into a little bubble so that we don't have to see them. We have this little bubble because there's these neighbors that are really hard. And last week, Ed Welsh was here and guest preached for us and showed us that really at the heart of this issue is the idea of compassion. Because in the story, the Samaritan saw the man on the side of the road. He saw him stripped, robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And this is what it says. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came near where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion on him. He, his heart was moved. His heart went out towards the man. Neighboring requires compassion. And it's important to know that compassion is not just an emotion. Compassion is an embodied response. Jesus is often described as having compassion or taking pity on others. But what's amazing is that Jesus' compassion is never separated from action. It's always together with it. Every single time. Every time the word is used of Jesus, it starts with something that happens in his spirit, which works its way out into his hands. Compassion moves you to action. Which means that when you're going to love your neighbor requires compassion, and compassion is always going to cost you. We see it in the story. You can see the words I've highlighted in yellow. Just all the stuff, all the time, all the energy that it would have cost to actually have genuine compassion on this man in need. It's going to cost you to love your neighbor. And again, this is where I hit my limit. Because I understand I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but I think that my love shouldn't cost a thing. Sorry, J-Lo from 2001. Her pop song is wrong, right? Your love does cost a thing. It's always costly. But I think I should be able to love people, and it should be easy. It should be simple. Now, my mind starts to wander then to all these people that we've just talked about, all these neighbors that are really hard to be around. And I realized then, what's going on inside of me is that I don't think it's worth it. They're going to cost a little bit too much from me. It's going to take too much work to love them, too much time, too much energy. And honestly, they're not worth it. It's not worth the energy, the effort they would require, the potential hurt that I will receive in their response. That awkwardness of trying to begin something. The sarcasm, the cold shoulder, the judgment, the challenge of, of overcoming their lifestyle choices which don't match mine. And yet, this right here is the most important moment. See, many of us think that we're really good at loving our neighbors because we can love people that are easy. And if that's where you are this morning, if you're looking at this idea of loving your neighbor and you're going, I'm doing pretty well at it, and your reasoning is because you love those around you that are easy to love, you're mistaken, you're deceived. It's actually the problem people, it's actually the difficult people that have a way of exposing our hearts, Tim Chester says. They expose our hearts for who we really are. They show us what's really inside. 
And when you think about what's being asked of us as followers of Christ, to love anyone and everyone who comes near us, including the annoying, the difficult ones that cost way too much, the problem people, the different people, and your heart is revealed, the question is, what do you see? When your heart is revealed, when my heart is revealed, I can tell you what I see. I see a heart that is two sizes too small. It's kind of grinchy. I see a heart that genuinely doesn't want to love my neighbors, at least not those neighbors, or at least not that time with that cost. I think if you're honest, you find yourself in that place often as well. Because love is difficult in the face of a political difference in an upcoming election year. It's difficult when you have neighboring disputes over lawn maintenance and how their pets use your yard as a litter box. Love is difficult in the face of people who have more, moral, make morally different choices than you. Eth- they have different system of ethics that they work by. Some are vulgar, with no boundary, no social awareness. People are needy. Love is difficult. It's hard. There are plenty of people that I don't want to love, that I don't have compassion for. Which is why we come to the end of this parable, and we come to this really important moment where Jesus looks at the man Verse 36 and 37 says this, which of these three, expert in the law, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, how do you hear that statement? Go and do likewise. Can I tell you how most of us hear that statement? We hear it similar to a fairy tale, a morality tale. And here's what I mean by that. Go and do likewise. Well, it's kind of like the three little pigs, right? What's the three little pigs teach us? Well, don't take shortcuts. Put in the hard work. Because you might think, oh, I can do this quick with straw or wood. But eventually, taking the shortcut is going to come back to bite you, literally, in this case. So don't be lazy. That's the moral of the story. You go to Beauty and the Beast and you learn we're not to judge people based on the outward appearance. Others teach us to tell the truth, be kind, all these moral lessons. And the primary goal of each of these stories is to give a piece of good advice. Here's your advice. Here's what you should go and do likewise. And so often we take that understanding, that type of storytelling, and we import that on the Bible. But here's the problem. The story of the Bible, the big story, the big picture of Christianity and all the little stories that make up the big picture of Scripture, their primary goal is not good advice. Their primary goal is to communicate good news. It shares something that has been done for you. And that's true of this parable as well. But your understanding of that depends on who you see yourself in this story as. Which character are you? You see, here's the fairy tale version of this story with the moral lesson at the end. You are like the Good Samaritan. If you see someone beaten, in need, robbed, left for dead on the side of the road, right? If you see someone in need, you should be a Good Samaritan to them. You should show mercy to them. You should have compassion on them. You should stop no matter who they are. Picture your worst enemy here. No matter who they are, because if the Samaritan's a neighbor, then that person you're picturing is a neighbor as well. Then... Everyone's your neighbor. You should stop. You should meet their needs, even though it's going to cost you. Go and do likewise. That's, I think, how most of us read that story. 
problem is it doesn't work. It doesn't work for two reasons. Number one, that's not actually what the story says. And number two, it's not strong enough. That motivation does not hold up under difficulty. It's not the right version of the story because let's think about this story. Start back in the beginning at verse 30. Jesus is a masterful storyteller, and he doesn't let you become the main person in this story. He doesn't let you be the one who, who is the hero. Go back to verse 30 in the beginning. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, who is Jesus telling the story to? A Jewish man, right? An expert in the law. Israel, the, the, the Jewish people are always central in the Bible, which means that if anyone is of any other ethnicity, from any other place, what does the Bible do? It tells you who they are and where they're from. In this case, we just hear a man. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's speaking to a Jewish man. To those hearing the story, which role are you designed to see yourself as? You're the man who's walking on the side of the road. You're the man who gets jumped by robbers. You're in the place of the one who is beaten and stripped and left for dead. Then along comes a Samaritan, his enemy, who shows love and compassion and care to him. And it's at that moment that you and I, for some reason, with no permission from the story, switch our places. We automatically go, oh, I'm no longer the man on the road. Now I'm the one coming in as the hero. Yet nothing in the story has given you permission to do that. There's nothing here that says you should switch your role. You're still the man on the side of the road, beaten and left for dead. Jesus doesn't tell the story so that you are the one who acts neighborly. He puts you in the place of need that needs to be neighbored, that needs to be loved. It's humbling because none of us want to be the one in need. We always want to be the hero, taking care of other people's needs. Jesus doesn't let you do that. And this is so important because before this story becomes about what you do for someone else, it is about what has been done for you. And this is a huge problem for us. Because we read the Bible and make the story all about us. When the story is not about you, it is about Jesus. Jesus says this in John 5 when he's talking to some experts in the law again. And he says to them, you study scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these very scriptures testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me for life. It is possible, and we do it very often, we read the stories of Jesus and we totally miss Jesus. We read the stories of Jesus and we don't love Jesus anymore at the end of them. Our eyes aren't on him, they're on ourselves. You can read the Gospels and miss the Gospel. You can turn a book that announces good news into a book that gives you good advice, telling us what we should do and try harder to be. We make the Bible into a morality tale. The problem is God is not just another thing that makes life better or happier. It is not good advice. Jesus is the true hero of the story. He's the Samaritan. He's telling the story about himself, but the reality of the story is way worse than the story that he tells. Because the Bible teaches that you and I and all of humanity are the ones on the side of the road. The difference is we're not just half dead. We're all dead, and as my Princess Bride fans know, there's a difference between all dead and mostly dead, right? I can't resist. It's my favorite. We're not just mostly dead. We are all dead. 
We are totally incapable of rescuing ourselves, totally helpless. And every attempt that we have to fix ourselves or the world around us just makes it worse. And if you're unable to admit that that's who you are in the story, that is you simply proving that it's true. You are so dead you can't even see yourself as dead. The difference is, you and I were not jumped by robbers. We weren't surprised by this. The difference is, we brought this on ourselves. We took the creation and said, no thank you, God. No thank you, creator. We rejected him. We made ourselves his enemy. We made a mess of ourselves. And Jesus, whom we deemed our enemy, he saw us. And his heart went out. And it wasn't just his heart. He went with it. And he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself and became a man. He became your neighbor. And he loved his neighbor at great cost to himself, greater cost than a few denarii. He paid the greatest cost imaginable. He paid with his blood. He gave his life in order to rescue us and to restore us. But here's where it gets so good. Because the story is not something that Jesus just made up. He didn't just fabricate the story out of thin air. He looked into the future and he told us exactly how he's going to rescue us. This story is not something he makes up. This is Jesus telling the future. Because if you flip the pages forward just a little bit more and you come to the end of all four gospel accounts, you find Jesus at the cross. And at the cross is where Jesus, as the Good Samaritan, gives the very thing that allows us to switch places because he switches places first, doesn't he? Think about the story. At the cross, Jesus embodies and fulfills this story because Jesus, the better Samaritan, isn't surprised by robbers and attacked, but he willingly allows himself to be stripped naked. He allows himself to be beaten, nailed to a cross, which hangs on the side of a road left to die. While the world walks by on the other side, mocking him. And as Jesus lays on the side of the road, crying out for help, my God, my God, what does he hear? Is there a good Samaritan coming to rescue him? No, he says, why have you forsaken me? When he lays on the side of the road, no one comes to bandage his wounds. You know why? Because it's not about his wounds being bandaged, but it's about the rescue and the redemption that comes from his wounds. Because Jesus hung on the cross, and the guard thrust a spear into his side, and when he ripped the spear out, what came out was blood that washes and forgives us of our sin and water that washes us clean. It is by his wounds which no one bandaged for him. It's by his wounds that we're healed. And it's only after you and I have received the neighboring love of Jesus that we are now then empowered. Because Jesus took our place there, he says, now, now you have permission to trade places. Only after you have received my love. 
See, this is not a morality tale. This is a gospel tale. This is not good advice. It is good news. It's a story where you and I are loved by the greatest neighbor of all time. See, Romans 5 retells it in another way. It says, at just the right moment, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us, his kind of love, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So what happens is when Jesus says, go and do likewise, this is not a muster up the strength to go be a good neighbor. The motivation like that never sustains, does it? You ever tried to muster up compassion? It's kind of like those, you ever see those like bounty paper towel commercials where you've got the, the good brand and you've got the competitor's brand and they both get wet and they put a little weight on them and they lift each one up to see which one can hold up under pressure? You know what I'm talking about? The competitors never holds, right? It'd be funny if they actually picked one that held stronger, but that would be not good marketing. They, they pick it up, and the competitors always falls through because it's not strong enough to hold under the weight. And if you hear go and do likewise as go and do this in your own strength, go make yourself a better neighbor, you're like the competitor paper towel. It's just not strong enough because as soon as you come across someone who is difficult, someone who is challenging, it falls through. You don't have enough compassion inside of you. You can't dig down deep. Because when you dig down deep inside of yourself, guess what you find? The bottom. You can't, there's not enough in you. You can hype yourself up. You can rah, rah, let's go be this neighbor thing. But it will fade like every other New Year's resolution you've ever tried. Which is why when Jesus says, go and do likewise, the expectation is that you can only love your neighbor when you realize that you have been neighbored and loved by God. You cannot go do something for Jesus without Jesus. And the command to go and do likewise is actually a natural command for those who have experienced the love of Christ. And you remember that clip from the Grinch we saw? When the act of love from a neighbor who actually was deemed an enemy is what changed the Grinch's heart, what transformed his world. It's only motivation that comes from a heart transformed by grace and the love of Christ that perseveres under the difficulty of loving your neighbors. No other motivation is strong enough. And that then changes the way that we see people around us. And we realize that our neighbor, even the difficult ones, are just like us. You see, when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command? And, that, and we get back into that. And he quotes, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19. And if you translated this really rigidly and woodenly, this is what it says. Love your neighbor like you. Now, we add extra words to make it make sense. But if you just read that, you think, well, is it love your neighbor like you love yourself? Or is it love your neighbor who is like you? And the answer is yes. Why do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Because our neighbor is just like us. Because we're all in need of mercy. We're all alike in our weakness and our frailties. We're to love those who we deem unworthy because we ourselves are unworthy and desperate for the mercy and grace of Christ. Loving your neighbor must begin with a sense of God's grace, not just 
God's grace to them, but to me. And to that extent that you understand, that you know, that you sit in, that you lean into and rest in the love that you have received, to that extent will you be able to share with the love around you. So this week, when you come to the point, which you will, probably today, where you come to the end and you find that your heart is two sizes too small, when you find that you don't have it in you to love that neighbor that is incredibly difficult, sometimes that neighbor lives in your own house. What do we do? Instead of giving up, when you don't feel like going and doing likewise, rather than just gritting your teeth and pushing through, why not go back to the one who transforms hearts? Because the good story, the story of the better Samaritan doesn't end in death, does it? Because Jesus on the third day raises from the dead. And he, as Hebrews says, is complete, able to save completely those who come to him because he always lives to intercede for us. So I go back to the one who loved me first and I say, Jesus, here I am. I'm face to face with this moment in which I do not want to love that person. I don't have it in me. It costs too much. My heart is two sizes too small. And you listen for what Jesus' answer is, and I can tell you what his answer is. His answer is, I know. I see your heart. And I love you right where you are right now with your grinchy little heart. I love you with a love that is more fierce and more huge than you could ever imagine. You're my child, and I'm pleased with you. As you hear that voice, as you sit in that voice, are you sure? Is that true? Can you really love me like that? As you sit in that, what happens that day in Whoville or Dresher or Abington or Ambler what happens that day is our little grinchy hearts grew three sizes that day. God begins to enlarge your heart. and He makes you and I more and more a people who are eager to love our neighbors ourselves, to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I, I don't understand you. You are too good. You're too kind. You're too loving. Your patience is just unreal with us. Would you remind us again right now, by your spirit, inside us, and inside us as a church, of your love that has been displayed on the cross and every day since. Would you take your love and would you transform us? We love you because you loved us first, and we want to love our neighbor because you loved us first as your neighbor, so take us, Lord, and transform us. Make us a people eager to go and do likewise because we are those who have been loved. And this week's gonna be hard. We're gonna find ourselves running to you multiple times an hour. May we grow in dependence on you and find that you are more than enough. We love you, Lord. Take us and make us more like you. We pray this for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of our neighbors. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.